welcome to Prototype Plus. My name's Hunter. What's your name? My name? My name is Hugh. How are you today? Honestly, Hugh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a little tired. You're a little tired? How come? What's been happening? I had to work uh, six days this week. Six days? This week? Uh, partially to uh, make up for Missy a couple of days because of uh, a COVID scare. What happened with the COVID scare? Well, my uh, girlfriend thought she had COVID, but it turns out she didn't. But I just still had to isolate her with her for a couple of days. So I had to miss work. So you got COVID? Is that is that no, what I the moral of the story I didn't was? Keep COVID. You didn't get COVID. Oh, that's a yeah. shame. Could have been exciting for us. Mm, not really. <laughs> for the podcast, give it some global recognition. It's like the podcast where one of the hosts actually has COVID. Might actually die. Might actually die during the recording. <laughs> Probably not. And you get all the breaks. I mean, you didn't actually have COVID, but you nearly had COVID, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's and, way uh, more likely for me to get COVID than you for, for you to get it at this point. <laughs> whereas, unfortunately, in Victoria, we've been COVID case-free for the past, like, 16 days straight. Wow. And you know what that means for me? It means you have to go back to work. Well, I'm already back at work. You have to work more. And, you know, that's, that's one thing, working, yeah. Is what it is, but uh, you know it should mean it should mean great things. Like I can see my family again, visit my friends, go out, have fun. I'm sure you've done none of that. Go to cinemas, even jerk off in the streets again. Jerk off in the streets again. Yeah, so it should it should be a great time for me. But uh, alas, alas, forsooth. You have a girlfriend. Oh, I knew a him well. Alas, alas, in, a, in your life, I do not. Oh. But I do have, or will have, a new friend by the name of Mutual Obligations (laughs) entering my life on November the 23rd. What are they, you ask? Well, I explained them on a previous episode. So please, please visit the archives for a detailed explanation of exactly what they are. But they are the requirements that you must fulfill in order to receive your welfare, right? And uh, during the pandemic those requirements were waived. Now that in Victoria, the second wave seems to have been uh, eliminated, essentially. The federal government is like, well, now you can start uh, applying for jobs again and stuff. But I already have a job, so I guess it's not really much of a thing for me. Yeah, I don't know why you're complaining about it. I don't want want them to make me apply for another job. I already have a job. I'm working three days a week, which is the entire uh, production schedule because it's only open three days a week at the moment. Because mm, of COVID restrictions, it's very complicated at my work. I should I should fill you in on that as well, because normally when it was like a five day week, mm. I would come in at like midnight or a bit earlier, and you'd do all the prep for the the day sandwiches to come. So if it's uh, for Monday's sandwiches for the workers, the yuppies, mm-hmm. they want their delicious prepackaged sandwiches. And in order for them to be available bright and early in the morning and throughout the day, I need to be there overnight mm-hmm. in the wee hours, making those sandwiches and stuffing them into cardboard boxes and then sealing them with a machine, right? Mm-hmm. And that was fairly simple. So you'd, you'd, get a, you'd get an order. It would say, this store wants this many of this, and then you'd fulfill that order. And I would put stuff into blue tubs, and those blue tubs would then be taken by delivery drivers in the morning and delivered to the various stores. But now, because they've cut the schedule back to three days, Mm -hmm. what we have to do on two of those three days is do all the prep for two full days of um, supply. Mm -hmm. For the one store, there'll be two separate stacks of tubs. One for the Monday, for example, if I'm working on the early in the Monday morning, and one for the Tuesday. So then when I'm packing things away, I have to think, oh, this one goes into this store for the Tuesday, this one goes into this store for the Monday. Very confusing. Uh, it doesn't sound that confusing, but... Yeah, it was not really that confusing. But I thought it would be interesting for the listeners to see how the other half live. Well, another, another reason I'm, uh, I'm so tired is that uh, I've, I've been promoted. You have, yes. Yeah. I'm glad yeah. you remembered. Now I'm a... Uh... You're the manager. Assistant manager. 
Uh, I'm basically one step below an assistant manager, a lead bookseller. So you're an assistant to the assistant manager? Yeah. I can basically do everything a manager does, except for just get paid less. <laughs> and how's that been for you? It's been okay. Yeah, I, I can open up the store now, which is actually pretty fun because I go on at like, you know, like to yesterday and the, today I went out at 8.30 and wow. basically I was by myself in the store for like 30 minutes. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Uh, and then the only people who came in after that were like the people working the cafe. Hmm. So basically I had the entire store just to like hang around in for like an hour and a half. It's good stuff. Oh, that sounds great. That's ideal. Yeah. Good job. It's it fun. It's fun. How did you how did you manage this swift promotion? Like you should tell I'm, the listeners. I have no idea. When you started and when you got this promotion? Well, I started in October. So it was only a month and a month and a half or so. Wow. Uh, I think I just got promoted because um suck that day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, my boss is a woman, so. But um I think uh Yeah, he sucked her dildo. Yeah. <laughs> Lubricated for her. Uh, I think it's because um, I was talking to one of my friends about this, and the reason that, well, you know, I'm a pretty hard worker, but also uh, I don't give a shit, and I think that that endears you to a lot of people. Does it really? To people looking yeah. to promote people, they look for people not, who don't give a shit. Not, not don't give a shit. In, that's in, good business in the way practice. That I mean, but don't, don't give a shit in like a. Oh, I'm, you know, I just don't. I'm not nervous or anything. I'm just, I'm just there, you know. Right. Right. So I think that's why. Easy going. Laser fair. Yeah, lasers fairs. Mm. So yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm getting paid more, which is obviously nice. What are you doing with your money? Uh, buying Friday the Thirteenth Blu-rays. <laughs> mm. And also the Criterion Collection sale is happening now. Uh, so I've been buying some Criterion Collection Blu-rays. Give us some titles. Well, I've only gotten uh, two titles so far. I'm probably not going to get too many. But I bought Boot Chavite. Did I pronounce that correctly? Boot Chavite. Um, I don't know about that. By Claire Dennis. Bachevay. By Claire Denise. Dennis. And then I got another French film called Monsieur Verdoux. Mm. Uh, by someone named Charlie Chaplin. Uh, and then I also got the BRD trilogy, or the Buns Republic trilogy, which consists of The Marriage of Maria Braun, Veronica Voss, and Lola. Three films by Rainer Werner Fassbender. Star of uh, an early Project A Plus project. That's true, when we still did projects. <laughs> mm. All right, so we're talking about uh, 2020's Rebecca. Ben Wheatley's new adaptation of the classic novel of romantic suspense, which is what's on uh, every cover of Rebecca that I've seen in my life, which seems to fit squarely in our wheelhouse of covering the Netflix films of once promising directors. Daphne du Mornay's classic novel of romantic suspense. Did you say du Mornay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's not her name. <laughs> How would you say Isn't it? Isn't it Maurier or something? I don't know. It's Du Maurier. I think it's Daphne Du Maurier. Du Maurier. Lady Browning. Yeah, Du Maurier. Oh, well. I, I sure will. I, I wish I could. She's been dead for uh, by, uh, 30 years now. Them's the breaks, buddy. Rebecca. Hey, girl, I think. That we, we can love and play Just you and me and Mandalay uh-huh. Just us and my dead wife She's called Rebecca Now, how do you, uh, I don't think we need, really need to go over the plot of Rebecca I guess we could offer a brief uh, synopsis, right? A brief synopsis, yeah so basically, um, Lily James plays this unnamed woman who is a uh, companion, a paid companion to a wealthy woman in uh, gay old Perry of the 1920s. <laughs> no, in uh, Monaco in, uh, I don't know what time this is supposed to take place in. Uh, uh, early 20th century. The indefinite past. 
But not mm. that early, because there are cars. That's true, but maybe maybe like the 30s. Let's say the 1930s. This yeah. is the most obvious uh, choice. But there's no references to the Depression, so. The novel is from 1938, just to be clear. Yeah. And the Hitchcock version was came out in 1940, right? Yep. Me two years later. So let's just say, yeah, like the 30s. Uh, but it takes place in the past, in the you know postmodern past. There's no real signifiers that really uh, you know give you a definite grip. No, nothing anchors it into a specific time period. Um, but it, yeah, it just has the general look of ye old, yeah, ye old pastimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she's a paid companion, uh, and basically she fought, falls madly in love with the mysterious and uh, theoretically brooding uh, Maxim de Winter, <laughs> uh, who is a uh, wealthy man who is troubled by the fact that his, or supposedly troubled by the fact that his wife. Rebecca has died not that long ago, and he owns this big estate called uh, Mandalay. Basically, they fall in love, they get married, they go to Mandalay, and everything is not what it seems. The uh, estate is under the tyrannical thumb of the housekeeper, Miss Danvers. Played here by Kristen Scott Thomas. Yep. And everyone's obsessed with Rebecca, the forest mistress of the house. Are there dark secrets waiting to be uncovered? You betcha. You betcha by golly, wow. That, that seems about it, right? Yeah, that'll do. Right. That, that'll, that'll do, pig. And we will be spoiling that, the, the plot, right? The yes, twists so if, if you have not seen either version of Rebecca, um, feel free not to listen. I'm sure that no one's listening, so it doesn't matter. But Yeah, no, no. To, to be clear, as, as you said, if you haven't seen either version of Rebecca, definitely go out and watch the 2021 only. Yeah, yeah. You can That's maybe buy maybe buy the Criterion Collection of the Hitchcock version only to piss on it. Yeah, in this street. Anyway, so uh, Hugh, uh, I guess I, w- I should start. Uh, Loved it. Oh, sorry. Oh, well, I was going to ask you. I guess we should start with. Uh, so we talked about um, Ben Wheatley being a potentially promising director, who again, like uh, so many others before him, so many others that we've covered on this show. Like your uh, who, who's the guy who did hold the dark? I've already forgotten his name. <laughs> the green room guy. Yeah, I forgot his uh, name too. Isn't it kind of a French name? Yeah. Oh my god. Jean Pierre. Francie. <laughs> Jean Pierre uh, Marie Antoinette. Let's just type in hold the dark real quick. Or someone like David Michaud also fits the bill. Oh man. We what? did an episode on Hold the Dark. What did I call that episode? I should have called it Hold the D. I should have called the episode Hold the D. Why did I do that? Uh, this is like, what, a year ago at this point? <laughs> like two years ago. Two years ago. Uh, uh, the director's name is Jeremy Saudier. Okay, there you so go. It is Let me just quickly check what I did title that episode. <laughs> I may have been hamstrung by my convention at the time of like combining a few different titles in one weird pun. Yeah. We did uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. I remember that. Oh, then it was Hold the Seventh Penis of Passion, Mr. Lawrence was the title of the episode. Because I (laughs) incorporated the Oshima film. Pretty funny. But Hold the D would have been a great title if it was just about Hold the Dark. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Anyway, uh, so have you seen any other movies by Mr. Ben Wheatley? That was what I was trying to lead into. Yes, and I mentioned one of them on the podcast, maybe. Maybe not. Um, I've only seen one other film by Ben Wheatley, and that was the film A Field in England. Hmm. I have not seen this particular joint. Um, So this was during the phase of his career right before he broke out into bigger productions. Mm. He was sort of a, a you know, a, a director to watch. Yeah. Making these kind of low, bu- low budget, grotesque, violent films. Yeah. And uh, I feel the England, I think, was recommended to me by my brother. Mm. Uh, I thought it was okay. I can't say I loved it. It was kind of novel just having a bunch of uh, British comedians in it. Mm. Wandering around a field. I didn't think it entirely came off though, but it was. That's, all right. how, I, that's how I thought about uh, his film. The only other film of his that I've seen, which is High Rise, which I thought was pretty enjoyable, but 
yeah, also didn't quite come off. Felt like there was like a missing ingredient or two. Definitely, yeah, someone who had potential, I would say. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I've heard really good things about his film Kill List, which I have not been able to see, unfortunately. Uh, maybe I'll be able to revisit that in a future occasion. Uh, but I must say, to spoil my particular feelings about this film, Rebecca, uh, I shan't uh, be expecting good things from it if uh, my opinion of Rebecca is anything to go by. <laughs> so you're not looking forward to Meg 2, The Trench? No, nor am I looking forward to uh, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider number 2, which he is apparently also directing. And his next film is In the Earth. Mm, which is a COVID film. Is it really? Or is it a film that was shot during the COVID times? And it reunites him with Reese Shearsmith, um, who's a British comedian and actor who was in Field in England. Mm, the guy who was in uh, the League, it, of, League of Gentlemen. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was an attempt to sort of get back to his roots a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his film Happy New Year, Colin Burstead, also is supposed to be a little bit of a, a root film, too, I think. Mm. Anyway, Rebecca, I thought it was terrible. What do you think? <laughs> what are you talking about? Before we dive into talking about this film, we've talked about our experiences with the director, Ben Wheatley. Mm. But have we talked about our experiences with the original Rebecca from 1940? Mm. Uh, I guess we have not. Or the novel. Or the novel. Have you read the novel? Me either. Nope. I have a collection of uh, Daphne Dufourier's uh, short stories on my shelf, but I have not read them. Do you really? Yep. A collection called Don't Look Now. I know you haven't read them because you clearly didn't know her names. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Is Don't Look Now her story? Yep. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's interesting. Yep. Yeah. Um, anyway, so have you seen Rebecca? Well, uh, if you had asked me any time previous to this week, I would have said no. But I made a conscious attempt to correct my missing of Rebecca by watching it before I watched this new version. Well, you've done your due diligence. It too, Huey. Well, if you'd asked me any time um, up until this week, if I had seen the 1940 Hitchcock film, Rebecca, my answer would have been, what? <laughs> and if he asked me this week, my answer would have been, no, I haven't. No I, no, I definitely haven't seen Rebecca. But if you asked me, when did I watch it? Two days ago? I'd be like, I'm in the middle of watching it. Let me finish. <laughs> I think we watched it on the same day then, maybe. Probably. Uh, I watched it a little bit after you, because I remember your message saying that you were watching mm. it, or the new one. I did watch it over the course of two days, so. Okay. I watched them both in the same day. <laughs> well, I'm sure anyway. that... Uh, no, I, I guess I watched it all in one day. Never mind. So we were, we were approaching the recording day, mm. and I had work and some other things on my schedule. So I was like, oh, I have to squeeze in these two films. I should have, I should have started watching at least one of them prior to this point, right? Yeah, yeah, you should so have. So I was thinking initially, I was thinking like, I want to get out of this somehow. So maybe it would be interesting if I offered the perspective of someone who hadn't seen the original and was just approaching this 2020 version fresh. And then we'd have the two different viewpoints because I know you had gone back and revisited the first one. Right. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. To be clear, I wasn't going to suggest this because it was a particularly good idea. I was just trying to find a way of getting out of having to watch the original because for some reason I wasn't particularly interested in watching it. I was like, oh, I don't want to watch some old black and white piece of shit by Alfred Who? What the fuck? And then I was like, oh, let me just see if it's available. And I found like this 360 DPI version on YouTube that looked like absolute <laughs> shit. Well, so I watched like, a beautiful Criterion Collection restoration. And I started watching that, that 360 DPI and I was like, oh, I could just give up now. And it was already late in the evening. I wanted to like make dinner and just blob about and not watch this shitty movie. <laughs> Jack off. And then I did another search and I found like a pristine transfer that was also on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. And it was basically <laughs> HD quality. So that was pretty good. Mm, nice. So I settled in and watched it. And uh, I must say I'm really, really glad I watched it. First, mm. And then this was my experience with the story as opposed to 
the 2020 version. Not to spoil what I feel about the 2020 version, but... It'd be interesting to watch the 2020 version first and then the, the original one. It would, but I think I would have had a less rewarding experience with the original film mm, having watched perhaps. the new one. I mean, it, I, I still think it would hold up, to be clear, but... But there is an element of surprise there. Yeah, it was nice to experience the the twists and turns of the plots of the plot um, in the hands of Hitchcock as opposed to, say, what's his name? <laughs> ben, ben Wheatley. <laughs> <laughs> not to, not to again, again, give away any <clears throat> any feelings I have for the 2020. All right, bro, let's get, let's get on with it. Let's get on with it. So what are you asking me? You, you didn't like what did it. You th- um, I think my feelings of it are more extreme than that, to be honest. Okay, let's hear it. You stop. Uh, I did not uh, enjoy any part of this movie. I thought it was wretched and pointless. There were some parts I thought were unintentionally funny, and that was about the only enjoyment I had over the course of this two hours long. Mm. <laughs> what about you? So, no one would argue that this is a worthy remake of Rebecca, and no one has argued mm. that. Um, based on the, the, the critical discourse that I have been exposed to thus far. And how could it ever be? Look at the pedigree of the original film. You've got Hitchcock, Fontaine, Olivier. It's the only Hitchcock film to win Best Picture, in fact. And it, it really is just an impeccable production across the board, wouldn't you agree? Oh, Selznick. Oh, Selznick, wouldn't you agree? Sure. And what do we have here instead in this 2020 version? Wheatley, James, Hammer? <laughs> Not the Hammer. Please, please, Hammer, don't hurt her. I think the interesting thing here <laughs> is that this is a rare remake of a Hitchcock film. Mm. People don't really tend to directly remake Hitchcock classics unless it's like an art experiment, as with Psycho. Right? Have, have any of his other films been remade? Like, they definitely, like inspired a lot of like reimagining yeah 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 reimagined like versions Bama, yeah type stuff and there's a million versions of of rear window there's a, re- direct there's a sequel to the, oh i forgot that she also wrote the story that the birds is based on oh there you go um and, and i think there's a good reason as to why people don't tend to remake hitchcock directly apparently there have been three remakes of the 39 steps that's a bit, a bit different, though. And a remake of Dial of Murder. Yeah. And another one called A Perfect Murder. But there's a remake of The Lady Vanishes. I think straight... And there's four remakes of The Lodger. I think... <laughs> there's a remake of Notorious in 1992. But I think the reason there's that... The, there's a television remake of Rear Window with uh, uh, Christopher Reeve. And then there's another remake by, with uh, Shia LaBeouf. No, but that's more of a reimagining. There's a remake of in Rebecca in 1997. <laughs> that's a reimagining. Those are reimaginings. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but that's what I mean. Remakes. Like, you don't often get hmm, high-profile remakes of his at least big-ticket films. Hmm. Yeah, the films that are high, like most associated with him. Like, uh, you never see one of like North by Northwest, for instance. No one's ever remade Psycho. Oh, someone has someone has me made psycho. What are you talking about? That was my joke. <laughs> you didn't make a joke. I'm not laughing. <laughs> so, and I think the reason that you see less remakes of, of him than you might expect is that mm. you're kind of if you're a director, you're kind of setting yourself up to be compared to him. Mm. If you're if you're doing like now here's Ben Wheatley's Vertigo, for instance. Yeah, the artist uh, as talented as Mr. Alfred Hitchcock. Hmm. So, I, yeah, I, I do think people are a little reluctant to come out and, and invite that comparison. But Netflix obviously has no such compunctions. <laughs> no, they, the only thing they care about is uh, the bottom line, let's say. I mean, I mean, they have selected a Hitchcock film that, um, I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say it's obscure, or unheralded. It's definitely not one of the ones that's talked about. I mean, it's like it's like mid tier in terms yeah. of talked aboutness. Hitchcock. It does tend to be overshadowed by some of his other bigger films, even if it was the only film that earned him a Best Picture Oscar. I mean, as, as we established, neither of us had seen it prior to this week. Yes, that's true. And I don't think they're pushing the Hitchcock angle here per se. They're probably saying this is another adaptation of the novel. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. And it doesn't really feel like Hitchcock-y at all, so. So, like, you can basically just forget about this, like, living up to the original film. Yeah. It's, it's setting itself up to fail in the first I'm place. More, more than happy to dismiss it on its own terms. <laughs> so if, if you go beat by beat with um, the 1940 film or the novel itself, uh, in as much as I can speak to that from reading the Wikipedia synopsis, <laughs> you know, this is a pretty shoddy retelling. That's extremely retelling. funny uh, uh, turn of phrase that. <laughs> And it wasn't pre-written, which is a surprise. <laughs> I think it. I think it's clear if you look at both that this is a, a pretty shoddy retelling. Yeah. Of just the the architecture of the story. Yeah. Because if you're gonna, yeah, well, uh, let, let's just let's get to your opinion. <clears throat> I'm, w- I'm withholding it. I'm I'm keeping you in suspense, like the master. This is in suspense. I guess it is. Yeah, yeah. Suspense, suspense is when you have an opinion under. <laughs> A train car, and you <laughs> <laughs> you know it's there. You know there's a timer going off on it, but you don't know when it's going to go off. <laughs> right? Is that right? Exactly. Couldn't have put it better. <laughs> I kind of came round on this film. <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't think it's good. <laughs> but... Viewed as a trashy, like, 80s-style thriller version, which strips away almost every good decision that Hitchcock originally made, and is at points borderline incomprehensible. I, I find that there to be something redeemable about it, <laughs> viewed through, yeah, through that lens. I, I, found, I found no such pleasure in any, any step. Um, and, I mean, it felt like an 80s thriller that was, like, forced to have a PG rating or something. Because there was, there was yeah, no, like... That, that kind of that kind of kills it for me, Yeah, you like know? a tame a tame 80s thriller, like a compromised production. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole joy of watching those, like, 80s, like, sex thrillers is watching the extravagant, like, over-the-top sexuality. The T and A is... Is the joy. No. no. <laughs> I mean, it is in part, but the just... The T and the campy. fucking A. Okay. The T going sort into of the like, A, the A going into the T. The uh, campy, um, I don't know, conflation. It, it feels very, uh, a, a distillation of the era was produced in, you know. Mm. Uh, whereas I, I thought this was also a distillation of the era that it was produced in, and that it just felt like a shitty Downton Abbey episode that had been grafted onto the plot of Rebecca. <laughs> And I also just enjoyed watching the bad version of the good bits in the original in a way. Like, it was like, how how is Wheatley going to make this worse? And he, he pulled it off every time. <laughs> it is, uh, well, I, I thought this movie was uh, very uh, boring, honestly. So I wish I could have shared your enjoyment. I really do. It was kind of boring, to be honest. But... <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I would have preferred a version that was more in line with that that sort of 80s sex thrower thing. Like, if they had gone, like, full hard R and just made it, like, delirious, that would have been good, you know? That would have been good, yeah. Like, if you had a scene where, like, Miss Danvers is, like, masturbating with, like, a piece of Rebecca's or her hairbrush, that would have been great. Mm. <laughs> I could have used that. Uh, but no such luck. But, like, there's a lot of fun stuff here, when, especially compared to the original. And, and you know, I watched the original in the morning and then the, the new one in the afternoon. <laughs> So it was fresh in my mind. And one thing to point out is um, Army Hammer's presence. Oof. <laughs> so his accent is terrible. His British accent is, is appalling. It, it is consistent, at least. But, but just like comparing what the character is supposed to be to what Army Hammer is presenting yeah. here. It's, so it's it's no, first of all, no, there's, there's supposed no to be comparison. a huge age discrepancy. There might be yeah. a big age discrepancy between Luther James and Army Hammer, but he looks pretty fresh-faced, right? He doesn't yep. give off the vibe of, like, an old widow. He's supposed to be, you know, brooding, which Army Hammer, for, for all his uh, qualities, is just so, simply impossible to do. I mean, he really can't play the type of character that it's designed to be. And for the story to work, it needs to be the Olivier-style interpretation. 
and you need a you need like someone who is who can be read as like a, a posh British aristocrat, which Army Hammer just simply cannot. I, it's, there's just no way, you know. And be, and they make him more relatable and charming in this one, which ruins the the power dynamic issue. The majesty the of 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 uh, Olivier's bizarre performance. And the and the original like it's fascinating. Like he's like off-putting and sort of distant and rude. Yeah. And that's why a line of the famous line in the original is his proposal. So he's proposing to uh, Joan Fontaine off screen while he's getting changed. And he says, I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. And it works because yeah. it's, it's Laurence Olivier. They've set up his character that way. It's a funny line. Yeah. It's well-written and well-delivered. And here they basically scrap, they scrape they scrap all other aspects of his personality yeah, and the aspects of the character in the novel is written. Well, presumably. Replaced with like this watered down um, army version. But they retain that line because it's a good line. And it just doesn't work in this context because he hasn't said anything like that in the, previous, in the preceding scenes. He's just been like a would-be lover. Well, what's great about the, the 1940s version and presumably the novel itself is that you know, it's not an especially romantic story, at least between the lead character and uh, Mr. De Winter, you know? Absolutely not, no. And there's, like, a lot of, like, class issues, which this film just does nothing with, except for some, like, dumb lip service, like, crap, you know? Yeah, it literalizes um, the, the class subtext in spots in the most sort of uh, wince-inducing way. Ham-handed. <laughs> the, the parts at the beginning where <laughs> they're, like... Where her employers just mocking her for not having any, any class. I thought it was like embarrassing to watch. I was like, oh my god, this is so bad. That was so funny to me because like <laughs> it, it, it's 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 funny the way that they think that, oh, now it's the modern era, you know, we can be more progressive than they were permitted to be in nineteen forty. But nineteen forty the the nineteen forty version is a way bigger indictment of of, of yeah, <laughs> elitism and and the class dynamic because it doesn't make it it doesn't make it a romance, you know. Like think about, I mean, we, just not to skip ahead too much, but like you know, we can just compare the way this movie is to the way the nineteen forties version is, right? Yeah, <laughs> which is like this, you know, the only only end result of these like you know tortured relationships, this like conflagration, which just destroys everything, you know. Mm. <laughs> that's that's like literally how the nineteen forties version is. There's like no romantic like denouement or anything. It's just no. It's burning. a great ending. It's just like yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. It's just like oh, she died. Now the Vader's burning down. That's it. <laughs> Where this you get this like weird seed that's in like Cairo. <laughs> it's like oh, I guess he became a fucking imperialist. Now this is romantic. Like <laughs> very strange. Why? Like they basically replace the. Subtler but still very present form of um, class snobbery and class antagonism and class antagonism yeah. that is present in the original, with like you know her employer literally saying, "Oh, you're a lower class, terrible person. I hate your class. I hate it. <laughs> You'll I mean, never be a success. Look at your the, terrible uh, sketches. You are terrible." I, I I know that this is something that uh, is like the most minor of details, and I'm being really pedantic, but. There are parts of this movie, too, that I just thought were, like, so off in terms of, like, depicting class. The thing that really, uh, there, there's two things, like, I, you know, Lily James is whatever in this movie. She's, like, nothing for the most part. She's no Joan Fontaine, certainly. No. But one thing that would be crazy is, okay, you know, she, it, I just can't buy Lily James as someone who's, like, poor, you know? She just does not have a, a poor, like, you know, there's plenty of poor people who are attractive. I'm not, like, denying that or, or beautiful, but, like. She just does not have a poor, like, attractive face. She has, like, an aristocratic face, you know? Hmm. So already you're kind of on shaky ground. The thing that drove me crazy is, like, in the beginning when she's ostensibly this, like, poor, like, you know, basically a, 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 a you know, manservant, right? Yeah. She has so many fucking outfits. Like, she changes outfits so many times. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> especially in the context of where this is supposed to be set. Like, I just... I just thought that was, like, really bizarre. Like, and they're all, like, stylish and cool. And it's just like, what the hell? Like, I don't, I don't, like, well, something that's great in the, the 40s version is, like, <laughs> Joe Fontaine has, like, two outfits when she's, you know. And it, that's, like, such an obvious marker of class in, the, in that movie, too, you know. Mm. But uh, not in the, not in this one. Also, I just, like, hated the insertion of, like, woke stuff into this, you know. Mm. 
Um, like, uh, you know the scene where they, like, first go to the manor? They're like, oh, this is his ancestor. Did you know that she was the first woman to be certified as a doctor in England? Oh, that was so funny. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I definitely laughed at that. That was so dumb. And they definitely tried to make um, the Lily James version of this character more of a, an active, kick-ass investigative girl. <laughs> it, it really feels like a YA adaptation of... Of Rebecca. That's definitely the vibe that I got. Which, again, it ruins what the original film is actually saying about those power (laughs) dynamics and what the novel is saying about it, which was actually Daphne Demeria's intent, I believe. Lived experience, yeah, uh, too, to some degree. And it's very, very, like, um, overt in the original, the way that he considers her age because there's, like, that running joke about never be 36 years old and wearing a black cocktail dress or whatever. And that's creepy, and that's what makes the original story yeah. great, is, is that the yeah. whole aspect is very there's much a, there's present a creepy here. dynamic, yeah. It's like a horror film, Completely you know? thrown out the window here. Because, yeah. again, it's just, it's just trying to uh, force this, like, very strange and off-putting story into this, like, romantic box, you know? And it's, like, and, th- and it's like the only way you can have a strong female character is for her to literally be strong or literally be, like, active in the investigation or something. And, you know, something else in this in this film that I have to say is that this is a problem with, like, modern cinema in general, I think. But the uh, way in which the cast of the film is, like, attractive up compared to the original, I think, is mm. a problem. Because mm. <laughs> the original is filled with all these, like, great, like, British character actors, you know? <laughs> While you're on that point very quickly, the one I wanted to highlight... Uh, in particular, was George Sanders. Who yeah, plays, I thought he was like he's a, he's so good in the in, uh, the, the Hitchcock version. He plays the cousin slash lover of of the late Rebecca. Yeah, he steals the film. Yeah, he is for so sure. good. I even thought the film was like lagging a bit before he really. Yeah, comes when, he, into, when he comes, comes in at the inquest, it's like, oh my god, yes, thank you. <laughs> and it turns the film into this like mock. Sherlock Holmes uh, investigation where he's like playing like this evil version of Sherlock Holmes as (laughs) going around doing like drawing room discussions with all the principal players and investigating the murder somehow. (laughs) But I I hate the way that I I hate the way that the new version too tries to like sentimentalize that relationship to some degree, you know? Yeah. But what's great about the, the Saunders interpretation of the character is like, you know, maybe you see the mask slip a little bit at the end of the movie when like uh you know it's revealed that rebecca didn't have his child and is in fact in fact just had cancer was like lied to everyone you know um but it, it never the facade never drops from his like caddish persona you know yeah and he's so good that's one of the best like supporting turns that i can remember <laughs> he's so funny but I, I also love just like all the random other characters like the guy who played frank i thought was great you know because he looks so he's so weird looking you know <laughs> You still get faces like that in movies anymore. And Judith Anderson feels- as Mrs. Danvers is like perfect. Uh, she's so, yeah. <laughs> in a way that uh, Kristen Scott Thomas can't approach in her more sort of literal interpretation. I mean, that's a, there's, there's like a weird element of, I guess you could read it as like sort of homophobia in the Hitchcock version. Yeah. To some degree. I don't know if they're especially qualified to talk about this, I don't think. Oh, no, my qualification just came in, so I'm good. Oh, okay, great. great. You, it's like you, an online course. It was the no, no, it just, it just qualifies me to speak about it. Oh, okay, okay, great. You just answer a few trivia questions and <laughs> you get a nice certificate. <laughs> it's just, it's just that it shows you two pictures of a woman and asks you which one's a lesbian. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, it, it's, it's kind of, I, I think that the depiction of the woman at the beginning of the Hitchcock film is pretty uh, uh, kind of homophobic. But I think the uh, Mrs. Danvers, like the the weird, like sort of undercurrent of lesbian attraction, that is is it's not exactly progressive, but it's definitely handled in a more nuanced way that I think is typical of films at the time, you know. And there is, and that like you know, the last moment where she's burning inside the the, the mansion. Was, that's like all the the emotion that's been trapped under this, like you know, both the the class system and the like you know typical British like repression, just like coming out, you know, mm. just makes what makes it genius. <laughs> Yeah, so I I thought this movie was pretty wretched, despite some moments of unintentional comedy. I think uh, I think this movie could be. I think there's, there's a specific thing that I, I latch onto with this movie that can perfectly summarize it. It's pointlessness, which is that uh, there's there's a, a dog that's persisted in the in both versions of the film. Right, Jasper is its name. It's like a cocker spaniel, I think. Right. Yes. And uh, for some reason, in the two thousand the twenty two or. Uh, 
the 2020 uh, film, they there's two dogs for some reason. <laughs> they only say they only say one of them one of their names. <laughs> I thought that was so weird. I was like, why are there two dogs? What's better than one dog? Like, two dogs. Is she calling after both of them with one? What's that? What's, that, what's that other dog's name? <laughs> Very strange. All right, bro. It's it's getting a little late. Should we uh, go on to bonus features? Yeah. Two thumbs up. <laughs> do you know what I just realized we forgot to do? Oh, the trivia. Shit. <laughs> trivia. Yeah, we'll have to do it next time. Yeah, you got to remind me. We've got to remind each yeah. other clearly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So let's go to bonus features. Uh, bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus So I watched The Raid, finally. Mm, I've only seen parts of that. Didn't, did not particularly interest me, I have to admit. I was always somewhat skeptical about it. You know, I'd heard good things, but I was never compelled to track it down until now when it just mm. appeared on some random streaming service I had access to. What was that uh, Indonesian... What was it called? Uh, the Night Comes For Us. The Night Comes For Us. That was a fun movie. Yeah. What about the raid? Did you did you raid, Orson? Are you doing Mark Cousins about the raid? <laughs> directed by Orson Welles. <laughs> Why did that occur to you? It, I don't know. <laughs> you remembered my great impression on that earlier episode. <laughs> Sometimes I raid just makes connections, you know. You liked shooting guns in confined quarters, <laughs> didn't you, Orson? <laughs> you got trapped in a apartment complex that was... <laughs> seems to be subsidized public housing didn't you Orson <laughs> have to fight your way out <laughs> alright let's, let's get out what do you think of the raid bro um, I, I, it's pretty good it's pretty watchable pretty enjoyable the fight scenes are pretty well done um, which okay. is the only notable thing about the film oh uh, another uh, contender or another uh, a candidate for our, our Netflix thing not a candidate another yeah, person who's done it Netflix ruined mm. <laughs> god that movie was really bad <laughs> what movie did we watch of his I don't even remember what it was now uh, I was going to say Hold the Dark but that's not right <laughs> no it's not that it's the old Dan Stevens and he's, go, he's going oh, to that right. island yeah actually that, that was, was a little like? bit better than some of the other Netflix ones to be honest but it was still bad <laughs> it was like it was like if the typical bar for them was like one and a half stars to two stars that was like two and a half stars <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> What the fuck was that movie called? Um, uh, the Apostle or something like that? Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> the Wicker Man Apostle. So I think I watched the version of The Raid that does not feature the original soundtrack, but features like the redone American soundtrack done by like the guy from Linkin Park. So the score is like <laughs> awful. That sounds great. What are you talking about, bro? I think, I think he does have a good grasp on shooting these type of... No, it's just called Apostle, apparently. Okay. He does have a good grasp of shooting these kind of fight scenes that is neither, like, sitting back and letting them play out in full, in, like, mm. wide shots to really, like, milk it, and doing a lot of one-shot stuff, which he doesn't really do, here at least. He does it in some of the sequels, um, which I find a bit too, like, look, look, look at me, it's one shot, it's one shot. I don't mm, particularly think that's that effective. this. Yeah, I don't think it's that effective because all you're thinking about is like, wow, this would have been really hard to rehearse and set up and film, as opposed yeah. to look at this Enjoying great action. Getting into this the film. kineticism of the action yeah. or something like that. But I think the first raid actually splits the difference quite well because he shows mm. the, the fact that the actors are able and capable physical performers while mm. also um, not confining himself to like showy one take sequences. So it's well cut mm. together. Um, and it has that brisk editing quality of, of classic Hong Kong that pulls off the same feat of showing you the action, but also selecting the right camera angles to heighten it as opposed mm. to the American way of like trying to hide the fact that the actors can't do shit <laughs> by, by whipping the camera mm. around. Um, so that, that all works pretty well, but it's also just, okay, is my review. Uh, the next film I watched was The Return of the Living Dead, which I'd seen years and years and years ago. 
I wasn't old enough at the time to probably register um, a decent enough opinion about The Return of the Living Dead the first time I saw it, so I thought it was high time I revisited mm. it. You know, obviously I'm a big fan of um, Dan O'Badden and his best film, Dark Star, uh, which is also John Carpenter's best film. And uh, I like the fact that this is like officially the continuation of the Night of the Living Dead franchise. <laughs> <laughs> Because the co-writer sure. retained the rights to having the living dead in the title. And that's why Dawn mm. of the Dead is called Dawn of the Dead, not Dawn of the Living Dead. Um, and then when Dan O'Bannon came on board, he essentially rewrote everything. And he makes, mm. the, he makes a reference to the original film as a film and as like a government cover-up of what really happened. So he kind of ruins the continuity between the films anyway. Mm. Um, but this has the same anti-authoritarian flavour that, that John Carpenter brings to his work and they both kind of brought to Dark Star. It's somewhat comedic, but it's not like a full-on comedy in that the horror takes like a backseat to the jokes. Mm. Uh, it actually functions quite successfully as a zombie movie and the effects are great, but it does have funny stuff in it and um, mm. has like goofy 80s TNA <laughs> So at one point, one of the punk characters, because there's like a bunch of punks at the centre of the film, um, mm. comical punks, um, one of them strips off her clothes um, to do a dance in like a graveyard and then like the zombies come to life and everything and she spends the rest of the film naked <laughs> having to <laughs> suffer through these horrible conditions where it's always like raining and there's zombies grappling at her. Mm. But I, I'd recommend it. I think he actually directs it really well i mean he's not quite at carpenter's level but pretty good job for a, a first effort yeah i wasn't to watch that i uh, never got around to it though worth seeking out so i watched what did you watch so i watched two films one uh, kind of kind of mirroring each other a little bit here one of them was a uh, rewatch uh, of a little film called uh i believe it's what does it say here? Oh, Citizen Kane. Have you heard of that? No. Uh, it's a movie about a newspaper man. I've already talked about other shit before, but uh, you know what? Uh, Orson Welles is a genius. Fuck you, David Fincher. I hope you die. And Citizen Kane's great because of him. <laughs> and everyone else can suck my dick. <laughs> That's right. I'm talking to you, Greg Toland. You, Herman J. Mankiewicz. Uh, you know, if, if you're thinking along those lines, I have some uh, tweets I can recommend to you. <laughs> no, no, thanks. Uh, so the other film I watched is a movie called, I'm sure you've never heard of this, called Don't Let the River Beast Get You. <laughs> I have heard of it. It's the film made by really? the guy who <laughs> oh, makes his can... living making jingles on Spotify. <laughs> ah, you, you, read, uh, you read the Wikipedia synopsis. No, I've seen documentaries on him. I know him from wow. that, not from this Whoa. film. I only know about this film because of that podcast that you recommended. The random snippet I listened of it was about this film. But where have the yeah, movie been? Um, well, I decided to, after listening to the podcast, Carrie the recommend this movie uh, several times, I decided to give it a shot. And i got to say, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> it's a very sort of like, it's just like a, a good hangout, you know, good time. Uh, a super low budget film shot in New Hampshire of all places. <laughs> mm. um, where... It's basically like a parody of, I would go with like a Roger Corman monster movie from the 60s or 70s or something in that vein, you know? It's like a very, uh, this is like, it's like parody itself to some degree. But um, basically this uh, <laughs> disgraced uh, tutor uh, comes back to uh, River City, USA uh, after being exiled for... Um, seeing the uh or for uh being the only person to see the river beast mm -hmm. and um basically it's just about him and all the eccentric characters that he runs across uh the film has this very specific affected style that i think the only uh comparison i could really come up with is like sort of it, it kind of reminds me of like uh david Lynch and it's fondness for like local eccentric types if that makes sense yeah uh, and specifically, and also because of the very off-culture way that it's uh, written and directed, which is to say it just is, it's just a strange and very funny experience. Um, 
it really feels like, you know, you're being led into this, like, uh, community of people who are making this movie. Because um, they're all the real people, aren't they? Like, the side characters. Yeah, they're all just, like, you know, friends of the main dude. His name is Matt Farley, and I thought it was... It's really funny and uh, really uh, charming. Um, so, uh, I would definitely recommend if you could track down a copy, uh, watching Dolph the Rupees Get You. And yes, as you said, this is, uh, the main, the main, uh, creative force, let's say, is a, um, songwriter who, uh, makes his living by, uh, he's written over, he's written like thousands of songs on Spotify and basically he makes like $20,000 a year by having like, you know, a couple of plays per song yeah so like the this. the issue with spotify for musicians is the paltry amount of money you get per play yeah and he he went around He's that particular hurdle by saying well if i can get one cent for a song if i have thousands and thousands and thousands of songs available here yeah cumulatively i can make a living and he actually can make yeah, it and he, and he does yeah so it. you know props to him for gave spotify which is an evil company yeah <laughs> And he does it in a more creative way than like some of the other bands who have like uploaded silent albums yeah. and told their fans to just let it play overnight. Because because he's actually he's actually making songs, you know. And he does stuff to get to get listeners by like um, having a song. Yeah, it's like it's like S O E, you know. Yeah, it is. Or S E O. He's got like a song based on like every single common name in the U S. or something like that. So people look. And he has like a lot of songs based on. Uh, like poop. <laughs> so yeah, he has like a whole concept it Alexa. about it. Yeah, some of it's pretty good, I will say. And basically, he takes the he takes the money he makes from that and makes these like really low budget films, which I you know really enjoy. So I would recommend watching uh, Dolphin or Piece Kid, you know? Uh I think that's about it. Should we talk about what we want to do on the next steps? And I guess we're going to do Hillbillyology. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, another uh, little anecdote about my bookstore is that uh, I was in the back we had our overstock, right? Mm-hmm. We had uh, maybe 20 copies of Hillbilly Elegy, the book. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, well, that's the show. I'm Hunter, and you've been Heal, and thanks for listening. Goodbye.